Let us pray as we come to God's word together now. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you will give us soft hearts, ready to hear what you have to say to us today. Amen. Over the month of August, we'll be in a short sermon series looking at the last 14 chapters of Genesis, chapters 37 uh, through to 50, uh, the story of Joseph. And many of us will know the story of Joseph already. Uh, Many of us, because we've read it, uh, some will have studied it, taught it, have been taught it. And many of us will also know it because of this, which should appear on the screen. Um, For those who don't recognise this image, um, around 50 years ago, a very talented composer named Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote what became a hit West End musical, a film, uh, and a production still performed around the country today, uh, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, And it is incredible, the writing, the music, the staging, the costumes... It's well worth a see if you haven't seen it. But it gives a certain spin on the story. A spin that if, um, like me as a seven-year-old in a school play, uh, you first encountered the Joseph story through this, rather than through reading the words of the Bible, it's a spin that's quite hard to shake out of your mind. Uh, because it gives us this, uh, this dreamy, talented, slightly silly young boy for whom uh, any dream will do, who takes on the world and comes out on top. How very 2023. Um, It's not awful. There's much that gets right. The the broad sweep of events, the kind of arc of Joseph's life, the awfulness of the family dynamics, the focus on forgiveness and reconciliation are all in there. But it's not quite how God and the human author of Genesis tell the story. It doesn't quite get the character of Joseph right, and it entirely misses out the central character of this story, God. So let's read and listen with open eyes. Not the story we might think we know, but what God says to us of this man Joseph and the extraordinary things that happened to him. Um, In a short series like this, um, and, and with four chapters to look at this morning, we'll sweep over 37, 38, 39 and 40. Um, I won't say too much now about the book of Genesis, how it was written, how it works, why we can trust that these ancient words record what really happened in history and what God has to say to us today. Uh, Do come and grab me afterwards if you want to chat through some of those good questions. Uh, But just briefly, by way of introduction, um, you can sort of divide Genesis into two chunks, really. The kind of pre-Abraham section, chapters 1 to 11, and then from the promises to Abraham in, well, the very end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 onwards. Um, and those promises, you may know, are extraordinary. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Those words are the context for everything that comes after, not just in Genesis, but right through to Revelation. Um, And this second big chunk of the book um, is divided into accounts. Um, The account of Terah, the dad of Abraham, goes from chapter 11 through to chapter 25. Then we get the brief account of Ishmael, um, Abraham's first illegitimate son, uh, uh, in chapter 25. Then chapter 25 to 35 give us the account of Isaac, the second son of Abraham, the son of the promise. Um, And then in in chapter 36, we briefly get the account of Esau, Isaac's first son, 
Um, And then if we jump in at chapter 37, uh, verse 2, we get the account of Joseph. No, Jacob, Isaac's second son. And that account takes us right through to the end of Genesis. And that gives us our first point. Uh, Number one, Jacob, the father of a deeply dysfunctional family, which we'll see in chapters 37 and 38. Jacob, the father of a deeply dysfunctional family. Um, These 14 chapters here, the writer of Genesis tells us, are first and foremost the story of Jacob, the account of Jacob's family line. And Jacob, we see in these chapters, is the father of a deeply dysfunctional family. Maybe some of us know what it's like to be part of a family like that. Uh, We start in verse 2 with an up-and-coming young son and his doting dad. And this dad's favoritism is blatant. Verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob's other God-given name, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Why? Because he had been born to him in his old age. Joseph is the miracle child, the golden boy, the precious gift from God, born late to Jacob's late favourite wife, Rachel. Benjamin came along later too, but no need to worry about him. And when Jacob hears his golden boy telling on his brothers at the end of verse 2, well, Jacob can't help but shower down affection upon his beloved. And verse 3, he decks him out in an ornate robe, the best that money could buy, that hands could make. How do the other 11 brothers feel about this? Verse 4, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. And we can understand that, can't we? The teacher's pet since birth, now put on an even higher pedestal. And then Joseph has these two dreams uh, in verse 5 and from verse 9. Dreams which seem to center around him ruling and reigning over his family and being praised by them. In the first, which he tells his brothers in verses 6 and 7, they're all bunches of grain, he and his brothers. And then his bunch suddenly rises up and theirs gather round and bow down. And then in the second, which he tells his dad as well as his brothers, his parents are the sun and moon, his brothers the stars, and they're all bowing down to Joseph. His brothers were already riled by his first dream in verse 5, verse 8. Uh, in verse 10, his dad is, is pretty put out too. And verse 11 uh, leaves us, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And we wonder maybe um, what, what we're to do with these dreams. Um, the narrator doesn't tell us. Though it's worth noting that in Genesis, dreams are usually associated with divine revelation. Think of God coming to Jacob in dreams in chapter 28 or chapter 31. And it's worth noting too that these dreams will come true if we know the end of the story. These dreams, though they may not be explicitly God-given, they seem to reflect reality. Whether Joseph was wise to have shared them with his family as he did, well, that's another question. Uh, But let's park that there for now. And press on with the story. We'll skim over the next bit a bit more briefly. But in summary, while out grazing their dad's flocks near Shechem, in verse 12, the other 11 brothers hatch a plot to kill Joseph, to get rid of him once and for all. 
Uh, Reuben, the oldest uh, brother, begs them to only throw him in a well and not kill him. Um, And then Judah suggests, um, why don't they sell him to some passing traders? Uh, They do just that. Uh, They make up a sob story about him being attacked by wild animals, um, cover his robe in in blood, uh, and go home and share the bad news with their dad, who is utterly beside himself. It is a miserable story. What a mess of a family. Joseph, sold into slavery for his father's favouritism, that wasn't his fault. Jacob's golden boy, gone. Reuben, the wannabe rescuer, left empty-handed. Judah and the other ten brothers, with pockets lined with silver and one less problem in their life. What a mess of a family. And this is only the fourth generation after God plucked Abraham out of nowhere. And this family can't even bless each other, let alone the world. What has happened to God's promises? How will this family ever come to anything? But of course, we, uh, we in 2023 uh, can't really sympathise with messy families, can we? Well, that's hardly the case. I think it's why soap operas are consistently uh, amongst the most popular of TV shows. And so many reality TV shows are based around families. Uh, my wider family at the moment are enjoying, or have been, it's just finished, enjoying watching a show called Race Across the World. They take, um, they take five pairs, uh, some of them are couples, or, or pairs of friends, or brothers and sisters, or uh, adults and their grown-up children, and they put them in one part of the world, they give them a budget, they're not allowed to fly, and they've got to get to another part of the world. Um, and I love the travel, the geography, learning about new places. But also I think one of the appeals of the show is um, looking in on other people's relationships, their families, seeing the little gripes and the struggles along the way, uh, and maybe feeling relieved that you and your family aren't the only one who experience um, such issues. So I think we know what it's like to be from messy families. But the story gets worse for Jacob and his family. For in chapter 38, we change scene. And we move to an episode that is awful, jarring, and feels out of place. What is it doing in the story of Joseph? He doesn't feature in it. What is it doing in the Bible? And it's uncomfortable reading for all of us. It might be particularly hard for those who suffered abuse within their families or the hands of men who should have cared for them. The camera follows Judah in 38 verse 1, who we last saw arranging the sale of his brother, as he heads down into Canaan and marries a Canaanite woman, in verse 2. Sometime later, he marries off his oldest son, Ur, to a probably Canaanite woman named Tamar. But wicked Ur is killed by God. Don't know how, don't really know why. And following the tradition of the time and laws that would be later written down in Leviticus, Judah provides his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar, Ur's widow, so that Tamar might be protected and that Ur, the oldest son, might still have descendants. Onan agrees to the marriage, but his actions in verse 9 suggest that he is not willing to provide children for his dead brother. And for his wickedness, Onan too is killed by God. So Jacob sends Tamar back to her father's house to live out a grim existence as a childless and a banished widow as she waits for Jacob's third son, Shelah, to grow up and marry her. A while later, 
uh, verse 12, uh, Judah's own wife dies, and Tamar, hearing that Jacob is coming to nearby Timnah, and realising that third son Shelah is all grown up, but that she hasn't been brought back to the family to marry him, takes off her widow's clothes and disguises herself, and sits down at the entrance to a town called Anaim. Whether she intends to be mistaken for who Judah mistakes her for, we can't be sure. But lo and behold, Jacob assumes that she's a prostitute and asks to sleep with her and offers to pay her for the young goat. She extracts from him his seal, its cord and his staff as a pledge. They sleep together and then she returns to her life as a widow. Judah tries to send the payment but this prostitute seems to have mysteriously disappeared. And then verse 24. Judah hears that his twice-widowed daughter-in-law is pregnant, and he orders her burning. But as she is brought out, Tamar sends a message to Judah. Verse 25. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. And then when the time came, she gives birth to twin boys, Perez, Perez and Zerah. It's an awful, awful story. Let me say four things about it. And I'm no expert. This is just where I've got to you this week as I've prayed, as I've thought, as I've meditated. Thankful for, to a few godly, mature women in the congregation who've helped me think these issues through. First, the sin here is not commended. The sin here is not commended. Just because something is recorded as having happened in the Bible does not mean that it is commended by the Bible and by God. There is nothing that indicates that the sin of Judah or anyone else in this chapter is anything other than wicked. It may not be as clearly condemned as, as we modern readers would want to see, but we would be wrong to interpret God's silence as his approval. The sin here is not commended. Second, the sin here is real. Sin here is real. The Bible, in its narratives, records for us what real men and real women have done, for better and worse. And this is what happened to Tamar. Uncomfortable as it is to read. And things like this happen all around the world to women today. This is the kind of world we live in, where people do things like this to each other. It isn't pleasant reading, but it is a reflection of reality in a broken world. Third, Tamar is valued in the narrative. Tamar is valued in the narrative. I don't know if you noticed this as Fumi read, but Potiphar's wife in chapter 39 is never named, nor is Judas, briefly at the start of this chapter. The only woman in this narrative who gets named is Tamar. And by naming her, she is given significance. Her story is being told, and told in detail. 
And she's presented to us as a real woman. She's not just a passive pawn acted upon by men. She's abused, yes, but she's strong. She knows what she wants, she acts, she fights for it. We may not be so sure whether she was right to take matters into her own hands and seek vindication in the way that she did, offering up her body deceptively. But I think we're supposed to take Judah's admission in verse 26. Let me read it again. She is more righteous than I. I think we're supposed to take that as vindication of her. It's what the narrator thinks about her, what God thinks about her. She is valued in the narrative. And finally, fourthly, that what happens to Tamar is used by God. What happens to Tamar is used by God. Perez, the firstborn of her twins, appears in the family lists of Genesis 46 and Numbers 26. But flick ahead with me to, to Ruth, chapter 4. And if you go to the end of Ruth, where do we find Perez in Ruth 4, verses 18 to 22? We find her in the genealogy. Uh, sorry, where do we find Perez? Him. Uh, we find him in the genealogy of David. And there might be a bit quicker to get to. Jump to Matthew, chapter 1. Where do we find Perez and indeed Tamar? In chapter 1, verse 3 of Matthew, we find them in the family line of Jesus. God used this awful set of events to bring forth his son. Think you have black stains in your family history? Jesus came from the family of Judah and Tamar. What a family that was. God does not approve of sin, but he does use it. He uses this awful thing that happened to Tamar to bring his own son into the world, to save the world. And maybe, just maybe, what happens here is a little bit of a turning point for Judah. Remember we last saw Judah selling his brother for silver? And if you've read ahead in the story, you'll know that Judah has a big part to play in the rescue of Benjamin in chapter 44. And if you've read ahead in the Old Testament, you'll know that Judah and his family are going to be big. It will be his, not Joseph's, not firstborn Reuben's. It will be Judah's line that will be the royal line. And so maybe, just maybe, Judah having his sin clearly shown to him here is a bit of a turning point for this man. There's a glimmer of hope that God could change and use him Genesis 37 and 38 give us Jacob, the father of a deeply dysfunctional family. These chapters are the story of him and his sons, as much as they are the specific story of Joseph, one of those sons. And this story is off to a sorry start. What a mess. Maybe this resonates. Maybe your family feels like a bit of a mess. Breakups left, right, and centre, seeming to repeat through the generations. Siblings who don't speak to each other. Parents with no relationship 
with their adult children. You've been through the courts, perhaps, as a family. I could tell you a few stories about my extended family another day. There'll be a number of us this morning who've been at the receiving end of poor treatment, favouritism, abuse, hatred within our families. And there'll be some who have been the cause of such things. It is our favouritism, our unfair treatment, words and actions that have hurt other members of our families. We've sinned as we were sinned against. And however closely you have or haven't experienced such things, I'm pretty sure that every single one of us will know and love and be walking through life with someone else who's suffered things like this. Maybe it all just feels like a bit of a mess. And you know that you're the product of this messy family. You can't escape it. And you feel unable to escape them in the situations you've known. And you can't see how God could work in and through it and them. And you, as you've been shaped by them. And it just feels like a mess. And that's not even getting started on the mess that we often see within our spiritual family, within the church. That's a sermon for a whole different day. I have two things to say, I think, if this resonates. First, admit the mess. These chapters are in our Bibles. If your family is a mess, and particularly if you've been abused and hurt within it, then bring it out into the open. Admit it. Tell it like it really is yourself and then to God. A few weeks ago on a Sunday evening our dear friend Matt Searles was opening up to us the Psalms of Lament, cries of God's bitterly oppressed, weak, broken, hurting people. Use them right there in scripture for us and of course pray in your own words too and then don't just admit it before God, share it with someone else. Seek help from a trusted friend Housemate, family member, home group leader, elder, pastor, me, tell someone, admit the mess. And then second, trust. Trust that God will bring righteousness. Know that you don't and you won't ultimately need to do a Tamar. There might be things for you to wisely do that may even involve, um, include involving the police and the criminal justice system. But you don't and you won't ultimately need to take vindication into your own hands and do so in ungodly ways because no one else is there to defend you. Because if you are a believer this morning, you have Jesus. You have Christ who will not break a bruised reed. Christ who's been appointed king and judge. Christ, who calls us to love our enemies, to forgive those who hurt us, to seek reconciliation where it is good, possible, wise. But Christ, who also promises that he will one day bring justice and one day judge all evil. So you won't and you don't need to, to do a tamer, to seek your own vindication in ungodly ways. For Christ is our vindicator. He is the truly righteous one. So trust him. Last weekend, visiting a friend's church, I met a Christian woman, not from the UK, and she was recently divorced, and she was desperate to take her children back with her to her home country. 
and going through a painful custody battle with her British husband who wants to keep them here. She was in the most extraordinary mess. I think this would be her testimony from what she said to me. It wasn't meant to be like this, she said to me. I never planned to get divorced, she said, as she described the pain of her own parents' divorce when she was a child. And then she quoted Romans 8, verse 28 to me. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And she told me that though it wasn't meant to be like this, though her life felt like such a mess, though she had no idea how things would work out, she knew that God was still with her, still working for her, still bringing all things together for good, for and in her. It was very moving to talk to her and to pray with her. So don't give up if it all feels like a bit of a mess. This wasn't the end of Tamar's story. It wasn't the end of Judah, Joseph, or Jacob's story. And it's not the end of your story. Keep trusting him. In chapters 37 and 38, we see Jacob, the father of a deeply dysfunctional family. Uh, Secondly, more briefly, in chapters 39 and 40, we see Joseph, an innocent man who suffered but knew God with him. Joseph, an innocent man who suffered but knew God with him. Chapter 39 begins, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. It's still the story of Jacob, but the focus moves a bit more specifically onto Joseph here, as we join him in Egypt. And despite being sold into slavery, he seems to have landed on his feet. Um, We see in 39 verse 1 that he has been bought from the travelling merchants by a man named Potiphar, an Egyptian official, the captain of the guard. Uh, Potiphar quickly takes a shine to Joseph when he sees, verse 3, that the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his household in verse 4. Everything he had, he put under this smart young leader's rule. And Potiphar prospered for it. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Do you see the little glimmer of God's promises to Abraham starting to be fulfilled? One of Abraham's family starting to be a blessing to people outside Israel. Keep your eyes peeled for more of that to come. But in verse 6, it all starts to go wrong again. For Joseph has inherited his mother Rachel's good looks, and Potiphar's wife takes a different kind of shine to him. As she decides, she'd like to have some fun with this dishy new manservant. Joseph bravely and bluntly rebuffs her, verses 8 to 10, a chastity that's a welcome relief after Judah's actions in the last chapter. But the spurned woman doesn't take no from this subordinate well. Having managed to get hold of Joseph's cloak, another significant piece of clothing for Joseph in this story, um, she spins a story to get the servants and then her husband on her side. She infers blame on her husband for bringing this man into the house. She stirs up a bit of racial tension and she portrays Joseph's actions as against the whole household, not just her. And for the second time in a few chapters, Joseph finds himself being thrown somewhere in verse 20, now this time into prison. But verse 21, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and he granted him favour. Just like in Potiphar's house, 
Jesus' good character and potential are spotted. He's put in charge of the prison and his fellow inmates. And isn't that just such a precious little glimpse of what is going on in these chapters? Not many mentions of God, not much clarity around what God is doing. But we're told again, as we were at the beginning of chapter 39, that God was with Joseph. He was showing him kindness, even in this mess. My uh, children are off school for the summer at the moment, so they are a family-friendly illustration. But it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the children's film Frozen, which uh, some of you will be familiar with. We've got two sisters, one a kind of ice queen, banished to live on her own. But her younger sister, Anna, never actually leaves Elsa, the old one. She's not physically with her. But Elsa, though she looks, though she appears, though she feels totally on her own, Anna is always with her, fighting for her, thinking of her, rooting for her. Now those two characters, they're just sisters, they're peers. But Joseph, he has the God of the universe with him, thinking of him, rooting for him, fighting for him. Joseph is not alone in this mess. And then a little later, as chapter 40 begins, uh, two new prisoners arrive in the prison who've offended their master, the pharaoh, uh, the cupbearer and baker to the king. Uh, Finding them dejected one morning, verse 6 of chapter 40, uh, Joseph learns that they have each had a dream. Ringing some bells from a few chapters ago, maybe. Uh, Crediting God as the explainer of dreams in verse 8, not whatever magicians pharaoh's court would usually rely upon. Joseph proceeds to listen to and then explain the meaning of these dreams. The cupbearer's fortunes will rise again. Joseph says he'll be returned to Pharaoh's right-hand side, but the baker's won't. He will lose his head. And notice in verse 15 Joseph's request of the cupbearer. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. But, verse 23, the cupbearer, having been restored to his position, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And the credits roll, with Joseph languishing, forgotten, in an Egyptian prison cell, far from home, without a friend in the world. A disappointing end to a story that had perhaps seemed like it might be on its way up. And yet, don't we see something familiar here? In this grim story of an innocent man who suffered time and time again, unjustly, unfairly, at the hands of those who should have protected him, and yet knew that the Lord was with him. Don't we see something we recognise? As we read Joseph's words in chapter 40, verse 15, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Don't we remember words spoken about someone else? In Luke 23, verse 15, as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. As we see Joseph upright and almost silent in the face of oppression, don't we remember someone else as a sheep before its shearers is silent? He did not open his mouth. And as we see, almost everything and everyone that came into contact with Joseph be blessed. Don't we think of another 
from whom just a word, just a touch, would bless people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And doesn't the story of Joseph show us his story so much more clearly as we read the roller coaster of highs and lows, as we feel the injustice, sense the inescapability? Doesn't this story help us to enter into that bigger story that we perhaps know almost a little too well? We perhaps rush a little too quickly through towards the end where it all works out and he's raised. Doesn't this story paint in vivid technicolor not just a dream coat, but what our saviour went through on the cross? And doesn't it lead us to marvel? Doesn't it make our hearts burn for Jesus? For the cross of Christ is not a sad chain of events that we look on from outside as innocent bystanders as we do Joseph's story. As Christ hung up on that cross, he was there because of us. He was there for us. It was our sin that held him there. It might as well have been us, shouting for his blood, stripping him of his clothes, beating him, scorning him, selling him, imprisoning him. He was there for us. We are not innocent bystanders at the, at the cross of Christ. And yet the Lord was with him. The Lord showed him kindness. The Lord vindicated him in a far greater way than he vindicated Tamar and would vindicate Joseph. The Lord raised him from the dead. And so we look at this sad, sad story and we marvel at what our Saviour went through and how the Lord was with him. He did not forget him. He kept him. He blessed him. And he blessed the whole world through him. And we rejoice that we have received that blessing if we've put our trust in him. We rejoice that the one who is truly righteous has made us not just more righteous like Tamar than the next sinful person in the row, the best of a bad bunch, he has made us perfectly righteous. He has given us his righteousness. And so we rejoice that languishing forgotten in the prison cell was not the end of Joseph's story. Hanging upon the cross was not the end of Jesus' story. And whatever mess we find ourselves in now is not the end of our story. Let's pause for a moment and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you that though you are quiet in these pages, you are not absent. Thank you that just as you were with Tamar, just as you were with Joseph, in the mess of their lives, so you were with Jesus, as he unfairly and unjustly went to the cross for us. And so you are with us in our sin, in our weakness, in our brokenness, in the mess of what has gone before us in our families and what will come after us, what we will cause. We thank you so much that we can look to Jesus hanging on that cross and see hope, see forgiveness, see a future, see glory. Help us to do that, we pray. Amen.